What's up? This is Ralph Trezvan. You're listening to Reviews and Done with my dude, Derek Dunn. Keep it locked, fam. What's going on, world? Welcome back to your number one spot for R&B interviews, Reviews and Done. This is your boy, Derek Dunn, bringing you the best in R&B interviews. My guest today is one-third of the legendary OJs, in addition to being a successful radio host, an author, a songwriter, and a one heck of a NBA 2K player. So everyone, <laughs> welcome to the Mr. Eric Nolan. How you doing today, sir? I'm excellent, man. These people, as soon as I'm getting ready to do an interview, my landscaper decided he wants to come out here and Buzz, 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 and do all kind of stuff. It was quiet a minute ago. <laughs> I will make it work, though. You know, that's what uh, editing is for. My man. So first and foremost, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to chop it up with me. I'm looking forward to hearing about your solo career, your radio show, and, you know, everything in between. And, of course, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the OJs, but it's your time to shine and, you know, give people – don't know how much you actually do, you know, a chance to get to know you a bit better. No so I'm looking forward to it. Likewise. So it's my understanding that you got your start singing at about four years old while you were watching the Ken Hawkins show. Now, I'm a youngster, right. so I've even heard of the Ken Hawkins show. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, back then... The Ken Hawkins show was like uh, it was like Soul Train. It was like Soul Train, um, and and uh, to give you a better understanding of it, it was more closer to uh, the Ed Sullivan show. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're really familiar with that either, but I'm pretty sure you've seen clips of it or something. You know yes, what I mean? Uh, but. Um, that's what the Ken Hawkins show was. It was strictly entertaining. It was the, the urban uh, uh, platform of, of the Ed Sullivan show because um, back then, Ken Hawkins, they didn't have no dancers or anything like that. It was just him being a host, and you'll have on, uh, you know, uh, uh, entertainment of our color, you know what I'm saying, urban entertainment. Now, was Ken Hawkins nationwide, or was he um, only based in Cleveland? You know what, man? Me being a young cat, I don't really think so when I look back on it because I can't find no real clips on Ken Hawkins. So I'm going to just, you know, shoot in the dark and say that that it was a Cleveland-based thing because I uh, talked to his son about maybe about four or five months ago, and he lives in Cleveland. So I think it probably was a Cleveland-based show or regional, maybe regional. That's one of those things, you know, that if somebody from my son is listening, you know, y'all need to do something on Ken Hawkins because based on what Mr. Nolan's telling me, it sounds like his brother was making serious moves in his days. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned it. Yeah. So music's always been a part of your life. One of your first groups was the Cleveland-based singing group, the Deltones. Did that group ever come close to finding a deal with any labels? 
And what was your guys' general format? Um, yeah, when I was, I was probably, I was probably, I was in this, see, I was, I was in the seventh grade, so I was probably about 13, um, maybe, yeah, about, about 12, 13. When I first started my singing group, it was a five-man group at first, and, you know, it had a lot of transitions, and we, uh, you know, I, I was just always serious about it, and the guys weren't serious, I kept it moving. And just kept replacing and interchanging and replacing until I got the people who really, really were very serious and uh, really wanted to do it. Then uh, when I finally, when I finally settled in with these these two guys, uh, Donald Tatum and James Tate, they were more my age and was very serious about it. And they were, and they had the sound like James had that real young sound, uh, if you will, Michael Jackson type of, you know, it was just a nice, clean sound. And, and I, back then, I thought I was Walt Williams, so everything was about Walter and, and, and Eddie Kendricks and that kind of stuff. And, you know, we, we rounded it out real good. Um, the Deltones, yeah, we actually did uh, come close to a deal. We had we had a deal with Gamble and Huff. Actually, we were we were recording some songs with them. Um, at that time, Walter Williams had became our manager, and we uh, started doing songs with Bunny Sigler over there at Philadelphia International. They flew us in. Um, actually, that was the very first time I ever uh, got on a plane. The very first time I ever took a flight was when. Philadelphia International flew us in, and we cut some records, uh, some demos over there, and um, nothing really became of it because I think Walter said that they were trying to shelve us. Because because when I put the group together, when I first came up, when I first started thinking about the whole three man thing, coming from five man to three man, I I, I thought that we were going to be the group that took the place of the OJs. That, that was my whole model. That's the reason why I modeled the group that way and came out of the whole temptation era. I, oh, man, it would be great when the OJs fall off, we take their place, you know, a la the new edition, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, when groups come along and they, they're the next coming. And that's what I thought we were going to be. So, um, we patterned every, everything we did. We patterned ourselves after the OJs. You know, our show was was geared around it, what the OJs did, the way we dressed. Um, the trade-off between myself and James Tate was all OJ-ish, you know what I'm saying? So we just thought we were going to be the next OJs. So, um, yeah, we came close. We came, we came very close to a record deal, very, very close. And he name dropped uh, Bunny Sigler. That's somebody else who I would love to see an unsung on because he doesn't really get his just do, I think, from the mainstream. Music has to know about Bunny Sigler and, you know, artists like yourself who grew up in that time know about it. But, you know, you talk about a guy that worked from everybody from the Whispers to the Roots to Jay-Z to Billy Paul to Lou Rawls. So yeah, I would love to see something 
done on a Bunny Sigler to put some respect on his name. Absolutely, absolutely. So you're doing the group thing. You start meeting people and everything. But I think your first taste of the industry came when you started singing background for Dennis Edwards, who we all know, saying with Temptations. Shout out to Dennis Edwards and rest in peace. I still miss your voice. But how was the experience working with Mr. Edwards? Um, I would have to say that's probably one of the best professional experiences I've ever had in the business. Because it, with, that, with that experience, when I thought, uh, you know, when I thought about professionals and stars and all of that kind of stuff, uh, Dennis has kind of molded me into what it was going to be like if I ever became a star. You know, like Dennis, Dennis was, was so cool. He would talk, he would talk to me like, oh, man, he would talk to me like I was his son. And we would talk for three or four, five hours, like when we'd be on the, we, we, we didn't even, we had, we had a tour bus for a short period of time when we uh, went on tour with Millie Jackson. Uh, we had a tour we did with Millie Jackson and B.B. King. And while everybody was asleep, Dennis would still be up because Dennis, Dennis had insomnia. So we would sit up and we would just talk and talk for hours. He would tell me these stories and these temptation stories and, and the people that he met in the business and who that person was and this person was. And so he, I, I didn't know then, I'm going to tell you, because I'm, I'm, the, the way I'm explaining it, as I'm explaining it to you, you know, like in real time, like how Dennis and I was on the tour bus at that time, okay? Now, uh, him getting me prepared, which I didn't know that either. I just thought he was just dropping knowledge, but I was sucking it up. I wasn't making any money. I think I was getting paid like $100 uh, a performance, but you couldn't pay for the experience and the knowledge, so I, I took it. And at first, it was the Dale Tones that was his background singers. It was um, he took he took us out on the road on on the big tour, and it was a lady by the name of Devonese Bird. I did another lady named Jeannie after that. But when Dennis went back out, you know, because Dennis had missed some shows, you know, he had his little troubles or whatever. And when he got ready to go back out. The other two guys in the Deltones did not want to go. They were like, forget that, not going, you know, Dennis is not reliable, Dennis is not this. My head was somewhere else. My head wasn't, you know, my head wasn't so much in the money. My money, my head just wasn't there. My head was into the knowledge and the experience, and I needed that. I needed it for myself. So I went back, and when I left Cleveland, Excuse me. When I left Cleveland, I I moved to Dayton, Ohio, because I was trying to. I was still trying to make it in the business. I still wanted to, you know, make it. So I said, "Well, I'm gonna go do it by myself." And I went to Dayton to record with Gregory Jackson from from Roger Trotman and Zap, and Dale DeGroat. So I went up there to start cutting some records, but. You know, I didn't have a hotel room. I didn't have money. I slept in the studio. I slept in Greg's studio. Actually, I slept up under the 
I slept in front of the console, you know what I mean? Because the console uh, was in this house. And then this other gentleman who had a studio we was recording at, I would stay at that studio sometimes because he had a third floor. So I would, I would take um, a pillowcase and stuff my clothes in the pillowcase and use that as my pillow. And I had a, uh, a coat, like a, a three-quarter length coat, and that would be my, my blanket, my cover. So I did all of that. But to me at that time, to be honest with you, at that at that time I didn't feel like uh I didn't feel like woe is me, oh, I'm just doing so bad. I didn't I didn't feel like that because I was doing music every day. I just felt like that's where I needed to be and I was gonna tough it out. Now, the reason why I told you about Dayton is because Dennis Edwards had a little girlfriend in Dayton. So now when Dennis got wind that I was in Dayton, he said, I'm going back on the road. And he told me, he said, come on, go. I want you to come and go with me. So Dennis, he would, he would send his tape ahead, his show tape ahead to, like, if we, if we did, like, five dates in the South, he would send his show tape ahead. A band would learn his show. And then him and I, his girlfriend and his road manager, would get in a car, and we would just drive to all these little cities and do these shows. With the, with that, and, and the band would meet us at each one of those dates, and that's how we would do these shows. But at the time, I'm right there with Dennis the whole entire way. I'm right there with him, and he's just steady grooming me, steady grooming me, which I didn't know he was grooming me at the time. Again, I, I'm just sucking all of this up. You know what I'm saying? So, uh and how I knew that he had took to me was later on when I finally, you know, got uh, uh, got my uh, my situation with the OJs. You know, because he came to one of our shows in St. Louis, and he just cried, man. He just cried. He was in the third row. Never forget it. On the end seat. And he just cried. He just cried, and he was just so incredibly happy for me but I took all I took every single stitch of that knowledge and those stories and you know those uh, business tactics those those uh, those, uh, all of the um, things that he went through you know because he went through a whole lot with the temptations he went through some stuff with the temptation and I took all of that I took all of that man and I put it inside me and I knew what to expect, how to deal with stuff, you know. So I, I used a lot of that. That knowledge I can't pay for, you know. I mean, dollars a night was nowhere near the price of what I got from Dennis. Yeah, that's one of the um, – hearing, hearing you talk about Mr. Edwards, that's one of my biggest gripes with the Temptations miniseries was they really didn't focus enough on – Dennis, and he was such an integral part of that group after David left and the hits they were doing in the 70s. It was just almost like Dennis was just kind of there in the movie, which I thought was very, very unfair and borderline insulting because they could have given him a bit more fleshing out in his character. No. He was kind of just, you know, just there. No, they couldn't. Have. They couldn't have did that. They couldn't have did that because – 
if they had to did that, then that would have been a whole nother series. That would have been a whole nother other kind of thing because Dennis, you know, Dennis, because nobody really, nobody really realized this about David Ruffin. David Ruffin was only in the group two or three years. Yep. He wasn't there that long with all of that stuff that he went, that he went through with David. He wasn't there that long. Dennis was there the longest. Straight up. He was there the longest. He got all the grannies. They didn't start getting grannies and all that to Dennis. That was got in the group. And Dennis and David were good friends. You ever heard that? Him, yeah, then him, Eddie, and David, they were good friends. You know, so Dennis went through a whole lot of stuff, too. That's a whole other story. I wouldn't put it past Otis if he didn't do a story on the Temptations with Dennis Edwards. That was a whole other movement. <laughs> True. And, I, you know, and I, mean, I get it. I know, I guess they were trying to focus on the um, the roughing stuff because that's who the, I guess the masses know more about the roughing years. They really don't know the just what Dennis was doing because, you know, even myself, you know, until I got older and actually started going through the Temptations catalog with Dennis on there, that's what they were doing in the 70s. Outside of the thing was actually going in and buying the albums, you know, on iTunes or whatever platform. Like, there was some some quality music in the in the Dennis years. So shout out to Dennis Edwards. Rest in peace, brother. So stick with yeah, the group. Yeah, that, that. – that 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 those those times that Dennis were in it was that was like more closer to the heydays. It's like what they tell me in the business. They, the group didn't start flying until they got with Dennis. I mean, the Temptations built the name with David and Eddie, but the group didn't start really getting notables until Dennis. And it's real. I, I don't know what the, what you call this. I don't know, but it's it's real. It's, it's it's weird how when the new guy comes in and the group source or start, you know, maintaining that they're not really thought of as that guy. You know what I'm saying? Because they're always looked at as the new guy, no matter how long you stay in the group. You know what I mean? I, I've been with the guys now 25 years, and I'm still considered the new guy, where Sammy did 16 years, and he's, he's a notable because when the OJ started really getting these really big records, Sammy was with the group, and he's no he's he's noted as being one of the guys that's been with the, you know that's like one of the OJ people know Will Powell, the diehards they know who William Powell is, but William Powell only enjoyed maybe about four years of success with the OJs, the backstabber years. You know what I mean? He only enjoyed the first album, first second album. But with Philadelphia, I'm saying, um, you know, he did all the other stuff. He did all the look over your shoulders and standing for love and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but when they started getting the really big records, William Powell didn't enjoy that that major success. Uh, Sammy Strain did. And when Sammy left and I came in in 95, I kept the group um uh, I, I helped keep kept the group at its level of what people expected out of them.
So before the OJ stuff, you were briefly in a group called E and J. That was the male's female duo. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I okay, after the Dennis Edwards thing and I came back to Cleveland, I was still I was still struggling, of course. I was, you know, I didn't have a place to stay, really. Uh my daughter's mom would, you know, let me stay with her. You know, no strings attached. We were just we had became really great friends. It became like we became like best of friends, like brothers and sisters. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's how our friendship turned into. She just so happened to have had, had, had my child. But, and I would stay with her, you know, and I would just, just, you know, bum around, bum around, bum around. And so my best friend, John Mason, he's, he was, at the time, he was the number one morning man in Detroit, Michigan. And he had a singing group. Uh, he was the manager of a singing group uh, called UNV, and they had a, a, a big record out uh, called Something's Going On, and they were signed to Madonna's label. Um, so he was like, look, man, you really want this? Come down to Detroit. I got an idea. You know, uh, let's come in and work on this idea. I got to Detroit. I, I just abruptly left. I left, I left everything. I got my clothes together. I had a little car, and I drove to Detroit. He put me in a hotel. I, I checked in. I probably checked in like around 2 o'clock that afternoon. At 5 o'clock, I was in the studio recording with this young lady. I had never met her before. Her name was Jeannie Lyles. And when we started recording, the music and the chemistry was so incredible. Her voice was powerful. She could be sexy. She had range. She had a, a homegirl look. I mean, and it, I, I just loved the idea. And by being Eric and Jeannie, that's why we, we, we came up with the E&J. Our first, matter of fact, the first uh, uh, album that we were trying to put out at the time was called E&J with No Chaser. And we just started Oh man, we just started putting together some great music, and I and and our producer, our producer, and the gentleman that we was recording um, at his studio uh, was um, David Lee Bradley, who is the guy who made the sound for Atomic Dog. That was his 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 mini move. He came up with that sound for Atomic Dog, for George Clinton. He was in the uh, P-Funk All-Stars. And we just started putting together some great music, and then we started working with Kiara and uh, with uh, uh, Charlie, and, and, and we, started work we just started putting together some really good music, man. And we got our first deal. Our first record deal was with Don Barton. Don Barton uh was in with what had the uh horseshoe casino in, in, in Las Vegas. He had he was the, the mogul for um Barton Cable in Detroit. If you came to Detroit and you had cable, you had Barton Cable. We were the very first rec we were the very first artist signed to Don Barton's label. And the head of A and R was um Shauna Bristol, Johnny Bristol's uh daughter. Hang on in there, baby. Please don't let me down. 
I'm going to let you know your little children around. Let go, baby. That was his daughter that was the head of A&R. So I went to Detroit, and we put together like a more street, hipper, hip-hop version of Peaches and Herb, but we weren't like lovers. We were like just really good friends. Oh, man, I had the time of my life doing that stuff, man. We recorded. We must have recorded almost every day. Every day we were doing something that had something to do with music. Every day. And John Mason put me up in a hotel. I had met some songwriters in Dayton when I was down there with the whole Dennis Edwards thing. I had met some songwriters in Dayton that came that became really close to me and had Mason to move them to Detroit. He moved, he moved those three guys to Detroit to start working on music for me because they were doing music up in Dayton and brought them up in Detroit. And they was working with music. With, oh, man, it was just a big old family type of deal. And we was really going at him. We was really trying to make this thing happen, you know. And we just wasn't getting, we just weren't get, we weren't getting there, you know. Um, and it's 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 not a shame, but I, I, I enjoy those moments. The only thing that I that I wish I could have did is that I wish I could have took Jeannie with me because I knew she was one of those talents that was, you know, that wanted to really make it in the music business. And she was, she was a female me. She was willing to do whatever it took to make it in the business, you know, without, you know, doing that whole casting couch thing. She was just a hungry musician out of Detroit, Michigan, and she had that Detroit, Michigan edge. She was real edgy like that. You know what I mean? Oh man, I was he linked me up with the perfect person. Yeah, E and J. E and J, yeah. Jeannie Lyles. Uh, a, a, a great talent. Do you still have any material you guys did together or is it all um with the label still? I I have I have copies of it. I have I have some material. I still look for some of that stuff, but I have a lot of it. I've I've heard it over the day. We had did a um a remake of You Make Me Feel, uh, You Know How to Make Me Feel Good by Teddy Pendergrass and uh, 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 Sharon uh, Page. Oh, man, smash. Big record. It would have been a big record, man. It would have been a big record. It would have been a big record, big record. Yeah, yeah, I still got a lot of that stuff. Cool. If you ever, if you ever release it one day, you know, you got a supporter, and someone who actually buys music in the form of me. <laughs> Thank you, man. Appreciate that. It's all love, man. So the break's about to come. When did you link up to start a business relationship with Gerald and Eddie Levert? Well, with Gerald, with Gerald, um, the relationship was already formed when I went to Detroit. Gerald knew I was trying to make it. Actually, uh, Gerald actually tried to lend a hand in producing. Matter of fact, I reached out to Gerald. Hold on, let me let me take let me give you two steps. Let me go two two steps back. When the Deltones were, when the Deltones in that day, hey, well, we was really 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 just killing everything that came in our way in Cleveland, and we became that group. We became like the the the, the number one um, 
group in Cleveland without a record. You know what I mean? Like when we would perform, there would be lines outside the door. We would, we started off in this club called the Juva Day in Cleveland on 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 a street called Harvard Road. And when I first got my uh, start in going to, I mean, doing the Juva Day, I was 17. I wasn't even allowed to be in a bar. I used to have to, we would have to come in the back door. We would have to come through the back door and go straight to the dressing room. And then we would go on stage. And when we come out off stage, we have to go in the dressing room and then go back out the back door to, to uh, leave because I wasn't of age. Okay? So um, we formed a, a really tight bond with the, with the club owner. He was always teaching us different things. So we would do one show a night, and we start building our name. By the time I got to be like 20, by the time I got to be like 24, we had, because we would do the club like every, I don't know, we would do it like about four times a year. By the time I got to be about 24, we had, we had people lined up outside. We had to do two shows a night where people come in, and then they leave back out, and then, they, and then some more people come in. We were the only group that was doing that in that city, I mean, in Cleveland. So Gerald, he really was a big fan of the, of the Deltones because he felt the same way. We were the closest thing to the OJs. We were the closest things he'd ever seen. Gerald wasn't even, he didn't even have a singing group then. He was trying to be a solo artist. Sean, he wanted his brother with him, so Sean played the drums. And then his cousin Mark played the keyboards. That's, that's, that was part of his band. So Gerald was always just doing the thing by itself. He, he didn't have no vision of doing no three-man group. And we became, we became close. Gerald was 16 when I met him. And we just became close. I got to hanging out at Gerald's, at Gerald's and them house because Gerald and them lived in the mansion. And they always had food. They always had something good to eat because his mother cooked every day. So me... I'm, I'm friends with Gerald, but I can't wait to see what they got for dinner. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't wait to see because <laughs> I could get a meal over there. So I just hung out at, 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 at the mansion every single day, like almost every day. I was five, seven days in, in, in a week, I was over there at least four. I was over there at least four days a week. And we formed a bond. And I never forget that Gerald, Gerald thought the, thought the Deltones was about to make it. He thought it went through the grapevine, it went through all over Cleveland that we, had, that we, was, uh, that we was working with Gamblin' Huff and, and Bunny Sigler. So everybody thought we were the next ones, and everybody was happy for us. And Gerald thought we were the next one. And so Gerald and I, we just formed a bond and, and, and made a pact that whoever make it first, um, bring the other one in. Whoever make it first, whoever make it first, come back and grab the other one. And that's how we thought. And that's, uh, that's basically what, what had happened there. Now, when I got to Detroit, I called Gerald and I told him, I said, Gerald, I said, we're having a hard time getting a, a record deal, a big record deal, or getting played on the radio. I said, but if you write a song on us, I just need you to write one song, saying produce written by Gerald LeBert, and I know I can get on the radio. Gerald was like, cool. You got to come to Cleveland. So me and Jeannie came to Cleveland. 
and he came up with this idea that he was getting ready to go on tour. He said, why don't you and Jeannie sing backgrounds with me and uh, – and, and, and that way I can stay, y'all can keep, I can stay close to y'all and still do some records on y'all. I said, okay, cool. So that's when we, we, me and Jeannie came up to Cleveland, started rehearsing with Gerald, and, um, and, and I, I want to say that Jeannie didn't work out as a background singer. That's what happened. I went back to Detroit, and we stayed there for a while. I mean, I stayed there for a while. I'm not mean. We, she lived in Detroit. Stayed there for a while. I got another call from Gerald saying his father was looking for a third member of the OJ, for the OJs. I need you to come back to Cleveland now. Now I'm torn. I don't know what to do because I got Janie who, you know, She's depending on me. I'm depending on her. I got my best friend who's managing me who has shelled out all this money because he was paying my rent and he was putting a couple of dollars in my pocket, you know what I'm saying, and, taking, you know, I mean, damn, they're taking care of me the whole time I'm in Detroit, you know what I'm saying, and um, I'm torn. I don't know what to do. So I had a long talk with my manager, best friend, John Mason, and he said, look, man, we, we're trying everything. There's not too much more I can do for you here. You need to go, and, you need to go back to Cleveland and, 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 you know, check out that Gerald LeVert thing, I mean, that uh, OJ's thing. I went back because I didn't want to leave. I was reluctant to leave because, like I said, he had shelled out so much money. So I, I came back. Again, again, I'm still homeless. I still don't have a place to stay. So I came back. When I came to Cleveland, I went straight to the studio, which is Treble Production. Went right up to the studio. Gerald was in that studio. You know, we hugged it out. We talked. You know, we even shed some tears and all this kind of stuff. And he said, Dad, I'm looking for a third member, man. I told Dad, you're the perfect guy. Uh, you know, you know, Walt ain't really sold on it. My dad is really give, willing to give you a shot. But I told him, you're the guy. Don't let me down, da, 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 da. Okay, so he said, I said, well, Gerald, I don't have a place to stay like that. He said, well, look, here's $300. I'll get you a place for the night and be back here tomorrow. Dude, I didn't come from that world. I didn't come from no world to get no room for no $300. I went, I went on the outskirts of Cleveland, got me a room for $29.99 a night, and <laughs> I was up there for like eight days, bro. I mean, I had yeah. cable. I had eight, at, that, at that time, HBO was big. HBO and Showtime, that's all you had on cable. I had HBO and Showtime. I had a hot shower. I could get me a hot meal, you know what I'm saying? I could go to Denny's or I can go get me some, you know, something from the gas station, heat up in the, in the uh, microwave, Twenty nine ninety nine a night. I was cool. I was good for the next eight days, bro. I ain't know nothing about no getting no room for no night with no $300. Mm-mm. That ain't what I did. You know what I'm saying? And I came back to the studio every single day. Gerald, when Gerald got there, I was there. When Gerald left, I left when he left. That's how long I was in the studio because Gerald was a workaholic. Gerald knew nothing but the studio. That's what he did. He didn't go play ball. He didn't go chase women. He didn't do none of that other stuff that people did every day. He did the studio. 
and I was in there with him every day. Every day he was there, I was there. So <clears throat> he put me on. He, he he had me sing backgrounds to the Father and Son album, and he paid me three thousand dollars to do the Father and Son album. Actually, it was thirty one hundred to do the uh, the um, Father and Son album. I took that money and went and got me an apartment. I got me an apartment. Uh, my daughter's mom co-signed for it. I got me an apartment, $600 a month. I had nothing but a bed, a 19-inch TV, and a PlayStation. That's all I had. My PlayStation was my CD player. My PlayStation was my DVD player, and it was my PlayStation. All of that was in one. Back then, that's when they had the 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 the, the, the PlayStation with the, the that had the top that flipped down. That's the yeah. one I had, and it was everything. It was everything, and I stayed. I lived like that for two years. I lived like that for two years. I stayed on the top floor. I stayed on the sixteenth floor. So. Um, you know, nobody could, you know, nobody could look in because I had no curtains. I had no nothing. I had nothing. I just, I lived like that for almost two years. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, man. But because none of that was important to me. None of it just wasn't. It wasn't important to me. What was important to me was uh, doing the music, you know. And then once, once uh, I started trying out for the OJ, which really, that went on for a couple years. Because I got my first gig being a background singer for the Father and Son tour in 97. Now, I started doing this in 95, got the first tour in 97. And and um, that's when the OJs, LaVert, and Eddie and Gerald, you know, had this big, we had this big, Two two hours and ten minute production, so I was singing background. So they were like, "Okay, well, how how is Eric going to do the background, and how is he going to be able to do the OJ's segment?" I said, "Look, I told I gave him the idea right there in, in the in the office. I said, look, man, I'll do all of that, all of that music up until Gerald do his solo thing, and when he do." I give any, anything and everything to fall in love. I'll sneak off. I'll go change up under the stage, and I'll come out with the OJs. And that's what we did every night. For 17 weeks, that's what we did every night. I would sneak off stage. I would go behind the stage. My suit, my suit and shoes and everything would be right behind the stage. I didn't go to the dressing room. I dressed up under the stage. That's why I dressed that. And I would come out with the OJs. The OJs had dressing rooms. I mean, Eddie and Walt had dressing rooms. They were dressed in the dressing room. I didn't dress in the dressing room. I dressed up under the stage. And then I come out with the OJs. That's how I did 37 songs a night. I'm telling you, if you ever find if you ever find the DVD or the VHS on the on the Father and Son tour, look at it. You'll see. I'm on stage for half the show and then I'm not there no more. I leave. Right on when Gerald sing, I give anything and everything to fall in love. That whole song, I was getting dressed. 
That's how we did it. So <clears throat> they were cool with me being doing that. They were very, very – well, Eddie was very, very patient. Walt was more like, if you don't work out, drop him. Get him out of here. But Eddie was patient with me. And as I look back on it today – I saw where the patience came in at because even though even even in my my movement my choreography and all of that stuff man um, I'm more fluent now than I was then back then I just wanted to get it right so I was a little more stiffer back then because I just wanted to do what Charlie Atkins taught us because that was our choreographer Pop Atkins from the Motown days who did all of the Motown groups and but it was a 15 minute segment it was a 15 minute thing that the OJs did. We did three little songs that came out. The test came in was how could I retain a full 75-minute show. So that's when they sent me to Las Vegas, and I rehearsed with the OJs six days a week. I rehearsed six days a week, six hours a day, some eight hours, but majority of them were six hours a day for six days a week. And I would go to my room, I would turn the TV cat corner, and I would rehearse, because Charlie Atkins gave me a bunch of tapes on, on the OJs with Sammy Strang. And whatever our assignment was the next day, I would look at that tape and try to learn it off the tape before I got to rehearsal. Then when I got to rehearsal, Charlie showed me the correct way to do those, do the choreography, but I was familiar with it. So I worked after rehearsal. I did three hours, two, three hours after rehearsal. I went straight to my room and started doing it again because nothing else was important. You know, I, I wasn't going to the casinos. I wasn't chasing girls and none of that. Nothing else was important. The only thing that was important to me was just getting this OJ's gig and not letting Gerald down. I mean, I, Gerald was in the back of my mind, you know, some of the times when I hear him, you know, say, man, don't let me down because, you know, I put all the marbles on the table for you. You know what I'm saying? I told my dad, you're the one, and I, that's what I believe, you're the one. And I've thought about that. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, I'm not going to go through that whole thing and say, oh, you know, that was the motivation factor. No, it, it was not. I was the motivation. I was the motivation, most motivating factor. I was, I was the one who um, kind of knew that this, this was a break for me. You know what I mean? So I wanted to be really, really, really good. And when I used to watch Sandy, when I used to watch Sammy Strain, man, them shoes to fill, man, I had to be on point, man, because Sammy was the ultimate entertainer, the ultimate, the best I've ever seen, the best I've ever seen. We had, we had three months of rehearsals scheduled. I got the whole routine and everything down in two months and a week. Charlie Atkins told me the only person that he ever seen that was as fast as me as learning this stuff was Marlon Jackson. That's what he told me. Cool. That's I, cut rehearsals, right I, I, I cut rehearsals short because I had, there was nothing else for us to learn. We, I had learned all of it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, Charlie, Charlie wasn't ups, he wasn't upset. He's just like, they, you know, cut my pay short, but you're ready. There's nothing else to teach you. You're ready. So then every year before we go on tour, we'd go down to Vegas and we would rehearse. We did that for at least 
12 years until Charlie passed. When Charlie passed, I think we might have did it for another four or five more years where we would go to go and rehearse in um, in Vegas. I mean, we just rehearsed in Vegas two years ago. You know what I mean? We still do that. It's just not. It's just not three months. You know, now it's like three weeks. Because actually, what we do is we ship songs around, and then the stuff that we put in, we'll we'll go back to the tape and see what we did as far as choreography wise, and then we'll emulate. You know, we'll do that again and refresh our memories with some of that stuff, and we just change the songs around stuff like that. So that's why it's just like three weeks now, but. I did that for like 12 years. Going to, I went to Vegas every single year for three months, every single year. That's where we rehearsed at. And did, I answer your, did I answer your question? You gave me more than another. So, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, to get a, just to get a bit deeper in that, I've always been curious to where you'll read a concert review of, say, an artist, and then, you know, they might say, like, so-and-so did this song, and then when the show hits your town, you go in, and you notice they took a song out of the set list. Now, is that based on timing, or is it based on, say, if the night before at a show, the crowd reception might not be as strong to a particular song, so you guys take it out of the set list at the next show? How does that work? I've always been curious about that. This will be true. We'll put together a show, and when it starts out, show might be 75, 80 minutes long. Majority of the time when we go on tour, we're headlining, so we get that time. And if we do, if we do four shows, you know, three or four shows in a row in different cities, and, it's, and the song doesn't do what we felt like it should do. We call it trimming the fat, and we start taking stuff out. Song might be good to us, might be a good OJ song, but it just don't resonate with the people, and we start taking stuff out. It, we, 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 we never put together, we never have put together a show just for our hometown. We've never done that. It's just by the time we get to our hometown, <laughs> the song, the, the show is, 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 is I mean, it's tight, tight. You know what I'm saying? It's airtight, and all of the songs work by the time we get to Cleveland. You know what I mean? So, so uh, yeah, we yeah we, we we do that we do that on on every tour actually. We do that just about every tour. You know, we call it trimming the fat. I remember I remember one year we went out with well, I remember two years but anyway. I remember one year going out with the Whispers, and we got to Oakland. And we and we would start on the west coast and work our and work our way back east. Al Heyman would would be the promoter, and so we would start on the west, and we would start and we started one time in Oakland with the Whispers, and I'll never forget that show. They tore our butts a new one, cause we had a new show, and just we had like about three. We had about three, three, three or four songs in that show that was just dead spots. That was just, I mean, they great records, but they was just dead spots in the show. And it wasn't working. We get to those songs, and it was like people were just sitting on their hands, man. I mean, and we would do those, and, and, and we did that a couple of times, 
I think it's like Oakland, and it's like San, it was like San, uh, 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 San Diego, and uh, we, I mean, we would do these things, Fresno, and it just wasn't working. But by the time we got to Los Angeles, game over. We got to take, we got to take that stuff off the show. And we got to Los Angeles, and once you, and once you hit them in, in LA, the rest of your, once your tours, your tours going to be a breeze. The rest of the tour is going to be a breeze. If you, if you get them to stand on their heads in, in Los Angeles, the rest of your tour, they've been told people all over the country. I mean, now you got sellouts everywhere you go. And Al Heyman would strategically do it that way. We did the same thing with the Gap Band. Gap Band was just, oh, they're fired up. They got us for about two shows. But after we trimmed that fat, uh-uh, wasn't no cakewalk no more. No, 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 no. We don't take we don't take L's lightly. The thing I love about working with Eddie and Walt is that all the way until today that I'm talking to you, those guys are competitors. They, I mean, they want to win every time. Ain't no, they don't want to sit on the stool. I mean, you know, saying like they don't want to come out there and just don't do no choreography, mull around, just sing. No. They want to do the choreography as much as they can. They want to sing those songs. They want to, where it sounds like sometimes maybe Eddie is reaching for a note, you know, it don't seem like he's going to hit it. He don't want you to put the key down. He He don't want you to change that key. He wants to go get that note. They love it, man. That's who, that's who they are. That's who they are. And I love it, man, because I, cause I – look, man, me, you, you and I could be, become the best of friends. But I promise you, if you get on the basketball court and you're on the other team, we're only buddies after the game is over with. Yep. That's just how it is. That's just that's, – and that's, that's where – that's the school I come from. Gerald was the same way. I mean, that's the school I come from. So uh, – um, you know, we that's what we do. We we, we we start out the show being one way, it ends up another way. So by the time we get to our favorite cities, you know, but we don't change we don't change the show for the city. Like to answer a question. We don't go to a city and say, Oh, you know, let's change it here because that didn't work here. You know what I mean? Um I saw the four tops do that one night. I, I didn't see them change their show, but the four tops would go we did the whole tour, and for us to be kind of okay, okay, okay. But when they got to Boston, they was like the Jackson Five. Certain cities just do that. It just they just you know our show still stood up, but when they got to they got to Boston, my God, the people never sat down. <laughs> never sat down. That was the Al Heyman tour too. The OJs, the OJs whispers. Four Tops and Temptations, called the World Greatest Singing Group Tour. <laughs> we sold out everywhere we went, man. <laughs> everywhere we went, we sold out. But the Four Tops and the Temps would flip-flop. You know, some, some nights the Four Tops come on second, some nights the uh, Temps come on second. But the OJs was always third. Whispers always was first. The Temptations and the Four Tops always flip-flop. And this particular night, we got to Boston. Uh, the Four Tops was a hard act to follow. 
That's just how it is, man. Different cities like different stuff, man. You know, certain songs work. But the OJs have been blessed to have have songs that work everywhere. You know, once we trim the fat, those songs work everywhere. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like uh, makes a lot of sense when you, when you put it that way. So Say what? With the OJ, it, make, it makes a lot of sense when you put it that way, just trimming the fat and oh, trying okay. stuff in different cities. Mm-hmm. So in sticking with mm-hmm. the OJ, you make your debut on the 97 album, Love You to Tears. Now, my favorite songs uh-huh. on that album were Serious Affair and Baby You Know. What do you remember about recording those? Well, Serious Affair wasn't on the Love Me to Tears album. Maybe you know what. Maybe you know. Uh, oh, yeah, Serious Affair. I know you're talking about. Okay, I'm thinking of, uh, from the um, album before me. I didn't record Serious Affair. That song was already done when I got to the group. That song was already done. I recorded Baby, you know, uh, love you to tears. What's stopping you from loving me? Um, all the stuff that Gerald wrote, I I sung on. Those are the songs because Gerald wanted me to be in with the group. He wanted me to sing on that album with the group. I didn't do Serious Affair. That was Eddie and Walt had cut that record uh, at their studio before. When we got the deal, when we when we because that 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 um, album was on Gerald's label. That was on um, that was on uh, the, the label that Gerald had put together, and so we did that. Volcano, Volcano Records, stuff that that's what Volcano. So all the stuff that Gerald did, that's what I sung on. Cool, cool. But I remember, I remember the baby you know. I remember because I remember Keith coming in, doing his part. Joe Joe Little had had wrote it from the Rude Boys. He had wrote it with Gerald from the Rude Boys. And uh, I was still new, man. I was still, you know, at that time, I was in the OJs. I took the pictures, and I did some studio work with them. But they still hadn't considered me an OJ yet. They still hadn't even announced it. They hadn't even announced that I was in the OJs then. Even when we would do shows, they wouldn't even introduce me as the newest member. Wow. They didn't, they didn't introduce me as the newest member until like around 99, 98, 99 tour. I was in the group like three years before they even said, this is the newest member, Eric Nolan Grant. And Eddie LeBert was the first one to introduce me in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Grand Ole Opry. I'll never forget it. And he said my full name. That's how I became Eric Nolan Grant. Eddie LeBert would say my full name. And uh, I remember him telling me, your name, he said, your name sounds like a, a movie star name. He said, you're Eric Nolan Grant. And everything he did, he called me Eric Nolan Grant the whole time. And after that, that's when they introduced me as the newest member. Tune into Reviews and Done next week for part two of this interview.